Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Rudin. With me is Marianne Steiner. Hello again, Marianne. Hi, Brian. And Marianne and I, as we typically are, are calling, or not calling, we are talking at you from Clayton Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. And for this episode, we're going to do, as we often do, uh, a deeper dive into an issue of health progress. And the current issue of health progress, winter 2021, is on long-term care and aging. And there's a lot to cover on this. Actually, a couple of podcast episodes ago, we talked about the effect of COVID-19 and aging. Uh, We'll probably touch on that because the pandemic really is uh, running through a lot of what's happening, uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And that's, you know, serves kind of as a, as a background, but it, more so for this episode, we really want to uh, dig into some of the policy implications and maybe what COVID's revealed. And, and Marianne, you know, from this issue, what, what were some of the big takeaways from the authors that contributed that, that you found? Well, I think, um, so first let me say that when we planned the issues for this year, and this came up as the first issue, I guess we were hoping that some of this would be behind us, and it's not. So I think that this conversation is really timely, and and these are probably two of the best contributors that we could have for this podcast. So thank you both. Um, I think that the, the, the points that people made in the articles in this issue and what I took away is that uh, the situation is pretty dire and that uh, through no fault of the people who are delivering the care, it seems to me, um, that there are ways to do this better and that as uh, Howard used the title of his article to make clear, it's been a tragedy, but it might be the right opportunity and the right time for us to rethink things. yeah, and I think the role of Catholic healthcare is a big question in this. You know, as Catholic healthcare tends to be leaving long-term care, not universally, but moving that way, um, are there other ways that Catholic healthcare can be supportive of the kind of good life people should be able to have at the ends of their lives? All right, and you mentioned Howard, so let's introduce our two guests that are joining us uh, via Zoom audio. Our first guest is Howard Gleckman. He is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute in Washington. He's the author of the book, Caring for Our Parents. And also, as as Marian referenced, he uh, wrote an article for this issue of Health Progress. It's entitled, Pandemic is a Tragedy and a Chance to Rethink Long-Term Care. Welcome, Howard. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Great to be with you both. Our other guest on the line is Susan McDonough. She is the Catholic Elder Care and Post-Acute Care Specialist for Ziegler Investment Banking. And Susan has a, a long career in Catholic healthcare, working for Covenant Health. She also serves in various leadership roles on, and sponsorship roles for CHA members. Susan, thanks for being with us. I'm delighted to join you. So there are so many questions that I think we need to ask about what has happened um, to older people and in elder care facilities during the pandemic. And and as I said in the introduction, this is not about um, putting blame on people, but it is clearly a chance for us to investigate how things got this way and what what we might see uh, as our way out. Um, Howard, can I start with you? What made senior facilities so vulnerable to the pandemic? I mean, what are the finances and what are staffing circumstances and what are uh, close living circumstances for people who live in these facilities 
doing to them? So the first thing to keep in mind is is that the problem of infection control and, and viral infection spreading through long-term care facilities is not new. Uh, every year uh, with the seasonal flu, we, we have outbreaks in facilities. Uh, we often have outbreaks of neurovirus in facilities. So when you have a lot of very vulnerable people living in close quarters, uh, it is almost inevitable that viral infections are going to spread. Remember, in, in many facilities, you have people living in double rooms. You have people living in quads sometimes. Um, you have people sharing day rooms, sharing meals together. Uh, and, and there are a lot of advantages to that. Uh, you don't want people isolated. You want people to interact as much as they can. But that interaction uh, inevitably creates a risk. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've seen with COVID, of course, this has been well discussed, but it's very important to keep in mind, is that even after facilities essentially close their doors to visitors, uh, the staff was coming in and out. And because one of the awful insidious uh, elements of, of COVID-19 is that it is it can be easily spread by people who are asymptomatic, it meant the staff were bringing this in without even knowing it. And without appropriate testing and appropriate PPE, and we, of course, we all know the stories about the problems there, uh, these, these ran through these facilities, this disease ran through these facilities like wildfire. And depending on who's counting, now over 150,000 residents and staff of long-term care facilities have died from COVID. It's really shocking. You know, I, I have two friends in two different assisted living facilities, and both of them are still isolated completely. I mean, food's delivered through the door. Um, and neither have had shots or, or have vaccinations. Is this changing in any way? It actually is. And I'm glad you mentioned the isolation because, you know, we are very good at counting the number of people who have died from COVID-19. Uh, we're not so good at counting the number of people who have died indirectly from loneliness and social isolation. Yet when I talk to operators of facilities and I talk to families, this is clearly a terrible problem. And, 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 finding a way to balance the, the, the need for preventing infection with the need for allowing people to interact with one another is a real challenge. To your question about whether it's getting better, actually it seems to be. Uh, if you look at the data for the number of cases uh, occurring in long-term care facilities over the last month, uh, it's actually declining. Well, that's good to hear. And, and that's almost uh, uh, entirely a result of uh, the vaccine. So I, th I think we are beginning to see, I, I hate to say the light at the end of the tunnel, but things are beginning to get better, at least for now. You know, we're, we're sitting here worrying about these new strains and whether or not they're going to create problems. But at least for now, I think things are getting a little bit better. Susan? I'd agree with, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I do think part of this is, as Howard so uh, clearly outlined, that Originally, many of the particularly skilled nursing homes were left without equipment, uh, didn't understand about the asymptomatic transmission, but they have done heroic jobs in terms of uh, infection control. But uh, right after the first of the year, particularly here in the Northeast, we saw a surge of those cases. But um, I'd sort of echo what Howard said about uh, seeing some positive things coming. Uh, most of the long-term care facilities either have been uh, 
at least first round vaccinated uh, or at least are on the list to do so. Mm -hmm. And um, the residents are, uh, are, are very supportive of this concept. I saw a um, clip from a Catholic assisted living nearby me and 100% of the residents had signed up to get uh, vaccinated. And one of the uh, first people in line was a 104 year old lady. One of the one of the things I think that everybody's grappling with right now is uh, encouraging the staff to also uh, have 100% vaccination. And you know there are some issues that have to be overcome, but uh, uh, we're moving in the right direction, definitely. Well, that's good to hear. So. I'm going to direct this one to you, Susan, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious about what you think can turn the situa- situation around, you know, in terms of policy, in terms of investment, mm-hmm. in terms of for-profit and not-for-profit partnerships to move things forward in a in a larger and more general way. Well, well that's a very complicated question. So uh, I'll start with the policy part. Um, first of all, I mean, as Howard pointed out, the physical environments of most skilled nursing facilities have, have simply led to creating an environment that it, where viral infections are easily transmitted. Uh, for years, um, payers, government did not fund, uh, were not interested in funding at least uh, private rooms, which really, in private bathrooms, which really would have uh, been a, a, a a certain advantage under the circumstances. And so um, having a look at the infrastructure of the uh, existing facilities and finding ways to uh, bring in uh, funds to help support those organizations that want to develop um, uh, improved environments, uh, things like uh, air conditioning and uh, things that not every place has. Um, I think that would be one of the things that would help do that. I think the other thing is is sort of on on a policy level, recognizing that the staff in long-term care facilities, particularly even though um, many Catholic facilities have wage and just wage and benefit programs, they struggle to pay their uh, aides, uh, housekeeping, laundry, dietary staff sufficiently to ensure that. A one job is sufficient. And so many of them, as we heard earlier, move from place to place. And that has created, or a work in place, more than one place, that has created sort of a way of creating um, a transmission that might not otherwise. So compensating um, staff in a real way. So, and then in general, I think uh, creating more uh, community-based services, not at the expense of the existing uh, facilities, but rather in addition to uh, our way to create options for older adults. And then I think the, the final part of your question was uh, more related to how these organizations are sponsored. And um, that's a that's a much larger question in terms of the strength of the organization and how they might be uh, seeing some some trouble, seeing some issues that are affecting their uh, continued existence. And unfortunately, 
in Catholic health care or Catholic elder care, we've seen um, some organizations wait too long to make a decision, and then their options are limited about what might be the next steps. Uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, Father Charlie Bouchard and uh, Alec Arnold authored us an article in the same issue of the magazine talking about the role of Catholic healthcare and particularly sponsors of Catholic healthcare in long-term care facilities. And, you know, we're not here to judge, but we would like to know if there are ways for Catholic healthcare to support elder care in ways differently than just owning and running um, facilities. Do you have ideas about that, either one of you? Well, um, I'm certainly familiar with uh, Father Charlie's article. Uh, Ziggler yeah. was a I think you're quoted several that, times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, we've seen the numbers. Uh, Ziggler tracks, uh, has tracked about 100 recent, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, transitions of Catholic organizations. And uh, sadly, um, I believe it is 20% or so have closed, 60% have been. Uh, sold to for-profit organizations, and the remaining forty uh, percent are, uh, or thirty percent, uh, are uh, have been going to other not-for-profits. And I know, Marianne, you were in the audience when I talked to some folks at CHA about a year ago, and right. only about eleven or twelve percent of uh, those hundred have stayed Catholic. So. We've been trying um, at, uh, to work with uh, CHA to identify some of the issues and challenges that exist. Now, uh, single-site organizations are increasingly challenged to really uh, survive in a very complicated environment. And so uh, we've been advocating, uh, we at Ziegler and others, and certainly Father Charlie and CHA have been advocating for the concept of um, plan when you start to see things not going the right way and be open to possibilities that might not have, you know, that might not be um, perfect, but certainly might ensure the continued ministry uh, survival. So. Uh, we've suggested people uh, con connect with Catholic health systems uh, where they can mm -hmm. uh, perhaps offer some support. Uh, we've uh, suggested going to CHA and leading age uh, about obtaining some support for our, uh, doing some analyses of mm -hmm. uh, what the market looks like, what your organization uh, may offer in the uh, in terms of uh, Continuing in its mission, we've we've offered some examples of how single-site organizations have expanded and been successful uh, in their marketplace. But the the underlying message is if if board members, sponsors, senior executives in skilled nursing facilities and other senior care options really start to see some problematic areas, that doing nothing is not an option. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, in terms of supporting them in other ways, I mean, if you're a Catholic health system and you have a Catholic nursing facility that is not necessarily in your own system, but in your market area, uh, ensuring that they're on your preferred provider list uh, would be one of the first things I could imagine uh, 
Catholic health doing. Uh, I also think that providing support in things like uh, uh, sponsoring telemedicine uh, opportunities where, uh, uh, you know, they might provide things like um, behavioral health for nursing homes, uh, Catholic nursing homes in the area. There, there are, there's a multitude of opportunities where Catholics um, in Catholic healthcare uh, can support um, Catholic senior living in a very positive, uh, consistent with social teaching way. Well, I mean, those are really good suggestions for ways uh, to follow through. And I assume these are already being done. Yes. You know, one thing I want to touch on, and maybe I'll, I'll turn to Howard on this, is just the overall business model for long-term care. And, and Howard, in your article, you really, uh, I think, highlighted uh, some of the misaligned, um, you know, financial structures, particularly from, you know, government payers like Medicaid, where really it forces families with with loved ones to look at resident care, look at nursing home. And so can you speak to sort of the challenges, uh, not just for Catholic systems that are, are looking to run nursing home and long-term care facilities, but just in general across the country? I mean, are there things that can be done at a policy level to to maybe realign things so that, um, again, you, you don't have the, the, the preponderance of people that, that are forced to, to go into nursing homes? Sure. So, and, and I'd like to, before I answer that question, I, I put what Susan was saying in a little bit broader context. This challenge uh, that the particularly the nursing home industry is facing, but 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 uh, 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 long-term care in general, including assisted living and group homes and the rest, the, this this challenge they're facing is is actually is literally existential. Um, I've talked to people in the industry who have said that they would not be surprised if a year from now half of the operators there are fifteen thousand nursing homes in the country, but but they say that they wouldn't be surprised to see half of the operators going out of business. That, that doesn't mean that half the beds will close, but what it does mean, as Susan was saying in the context of Catholic health, it means there's going to be an enormous amount of consolidation that in some cases places will close, but in other places they'll be acquired. And, and that's going to change the culture of facilities, I think, in very dramatic ways. In terms of... Can you spell those out? Howard, I'm sorry, before you go on, could you spell out the dramatic ways you think it'll change? Sure, I was just going to do that. Okay, so, <laughs> sorry. So I, I, I think that it's important, and probably many people on this podcast know it, but just to just to kind of set the stage, nursing homes are sort of odd ducks because they, they run two separate businesses often in the same building. There is the post-acute uh, Medicare uh, part of the business, and then there is the uh, long-stay uh, part of the business largely funded by Medicaid. And, and these facilities operate in this very strange financial environment where Medicare will pay, fee-for-service Medicare will pay $500 a day uh, for uh, care. Uh, uh, managed care will pay maybe $400 a day uh, for post-acute care. But on the, on the long-stay side, Medicaid pays on an average of $200 a day. And, of course, that varies from state to state. What's happened until recently is, is the... Um, the, the Medicare part of the business, the post-acute rehab part of the business, cross-subsidized the Medicaid part of the business. One of the things that COVID did was it blew that model up. As you all remember that early in the days of the, of the pandemic, hospitals stopped doing elective surgeries. And a lot of those elective surgeries were total joints. There were knees and hips. And people traditionally went to nursing homes to get 
rehab after those surgeries. That business dried up, disappeared. And, and that created enormous financial pressures. Um, even before COVID, there was a trend toward doing a lot of that rehab um, at home rather than facility-based. So that business was already in some trouble, and now it is in much, much more severe trouble. Without that income, uh, it makes it impossible to, to support the Medicaid-funded um, uh, long-stay part of the, uh, the facility. The other issue, which is really interesting, I'm sort of playing around with some numbers about this. So, so most of those, there are about 700,000 uh, long-stay residents in a, in a given day in, a nursing, in nursing homes. And um, it looks like probably 20 to 30% of them are there only because that's where Medicaid pays. Um, they have no clinical need to be in a nursing facility. They don't need skilled nursing, but they're there because Medicaid pays room and board in a nursing home. It does not pay room and board anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Many states have home and community-based programs but those programs often provide insufficient care uh, for people. They often have long waiting lists. I live in Maryland where the waiting list to get on a home and community-based uh, benefit is three years. Wow. And that essentially means that by the time you're eligible, you'll be dead. So uh, the system has got to rethink in a very fundamental way how it's going to pay both for Medicare and for Medicaid. And there's an argument to be made that Medicare is paying too much, that Medicaid is paying not nearly enough. Uh, and until that gets sorted out, we're going to see, as Susan talked about in the Catholic health world, we're going to see in the broader world, uh, more and more facilities are going to abandon long-term care because they just can't make it work. It's just the numbers are impossible. So what's going to happen to all those people? That's the that's the $64 billion question, right? <laughs> Um, there are, for people who can private pay, there, there are increasingly options um, at home. Uh, home care agencies, home health agencies are providing more and more sophisticated care. Um, there is, um, as, as, I, as I mentioned, there is something now called SNF at home, skilled nursing facilities at home. Uh, uh, organizations are involved in providing those kinds of services. Technology makes it possible to do more and more of this at home. Even for long-stay monitoring and other technologies make it possible to do things that couldn't be done before. For people who need uh, more sophisticated uh, medical support, you can, you can put almost any kind of a device. You can put up, there, there's now things called hospital at home. You can put basically a hospital room in somebody's bedroom. Um, but that's private pay. So, so, so there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot you can now do, and increasingly this is going to happen at home. Uh, but 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 not but not for everybody. I think it's important to note that that you know I, that there are some people I talk to whose whose attitude is you know we don't need nursing homes at all. You know, turn them all into parking lots. There's there's no point to a nursing home. In fact, they're evil. And what I often say to them is, you know, you have to understand there are people. There are some people in the world who who, who need some kind of congregate care. They cannot take care of themselves at home, and if they don't have a caregiver who can help them, a family caregiver who can help them. It's just not realistic to expect them to stay at home. So there needs to be some sort of institutional facility that can that can care for them. The question is, what's that going to look like and how are we going to pay for it? I would agree completely with that. Uh, I think we have a system right now that has created the haves and the have-nots. 
And um, if, as you have funds, uh, there are a whole variety of options that are available to you. And one might also argue that if you're low income and at least have some kind of public support, there are other options available to you. But in, in large measure, the folks that are having the hardest time uh, paying for something in their future are those who are middle income. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, an area particularly where not-for-profit organizations and Catholics uh, in particular are uh, are trying to find a way to serve those folks. I, I do think that um, in the longer term, we're going to need different ways to pay for care. And that those that care has to be diversified, as Howard was saying, in terms of what, what setting is most appropriate. It's very hard right now, given the options, even in a very sophisticated organization, to cover somebody who does not have a, a caregiver at home who is, is advanced dementia or has multiple chronic um, or uh, comorbidities, uh, chronic care needs, I should say. Mm-hmm. And um, so during the Obama administration, a, a lot of organizations, including CHA and Leading Age, were working on uh, a process by which p- people could start funding their long-term care needs uh, at an earlier age. It, it, something passed, but really never got off the ground. So um, hopefully that that work, which has continued in some form by leading age, will continue. And we can come up with an option that is um, allows a middle-income person to start planning for their future. How do people find out about that? I mean, I, I that seems, are financial planners the people who tell you about that? Or is it your physician who tells you about that? Because it's... Well, right now, Marianne, there really isn't something like that. There are a few... Um, insurance models, there's long-term care insurance, but the the rate at which people have uh, signed up for that is not particularly high. But but there are organizations that are working on um, uh, CHA leading age to try to find way to f- try to find ways to finance long-term care in the future that is uh, not solely dependent on the federal government or uh, having large amounts of assets available. So right now there's nothing. Go ahead, Howard. No, just, just to follow up on that, Susan, I think it's a, it's a really good point. And, and I, I, I wanted to mention that a few years ago, I worked with a group, including uh, people from Leading Age, uh, who uh, proposed what we called a catastrophic public long-term care insurance program. And the idea was that, uh, you know, it was, it was, possible for those middle-income people that you're talking about, Susan, to finance a portion of their care, you know, in the early days when they first needed care, but that it was really not possible for people to be able to fund the true catastrophic care, you know, care that they might require after the the second or third year. Um, Long-term care insurance uh, companies have largely stopped selling true catastrophic policies. It's hard to get a policy that covers more than five years of risk. So we concluded that the only solution um, was a public program that would cover that true catastrophic need. And we calculated that you could pay for this with a, with a payroll tax increase of about a half a percent 
And that meant that the kind of middle income household that Susan was talking about, uh, a middle income worker would, would pay about $600 a year um, in higher taxes in order to get uh, a lifetime catastrophic benefit hmm. uh, for long-term care. That proposal um, you know, it has generated some interest in Congress and some interest in the states. Um, uh, Congressman Frank Pallone, who is the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House, has expressed some interest in it. Uh, some other members of Congress, have, there's a bill that's probably going to be introduced in the next month or so that's going to do something like this. And a number of states are exploring the idea of a public long-term care program. The problem with it is it requires a tax increase and getting politicians in the United States in 2021 to support a tax increase is very, very hard. Mm -hmm. The argument we make is, is that um, this is a pay me now or pay me later story, because if, if you don't provide some sort of insurance based program, and by the way, every other developed country in the world, except for the United States and the United Kingdom have this. But if you don't provide some sort of insurance-based program, what you're going to have are middle-income people who are going to land on Medicaid. So the government's going to have to pay for it anyway. Yeah. Well, we are um, coming up to our time here. So just wrap up this really good conversation. I guess the last question I have, and maybe start with Susan and, and Howard, you can react, is, um, again, the issue of health progress, kind of looking at the future of long-term care and the role of for-profit and not-for-profit Um I guess, Susan, do you see uh, or are you hopeful about any creative entrepreneurship uh, that could align with uh, not-for-profits like Catholic Systems in redefining you know, what opportunities we might be able to offer to our older citizens? Absolutely. Um, I've seen some great uh, innovation around the country uh, where uh, Catholic organizations are developing additional resources to serve people in the community using uh, technology, as Howard outlined, to uh, help older adults, uh, creating expanded continuums of care that include both uh, uh, facility-based assisted living and then a, a wide range of home and uh, uh, community-based services. So I'm, I'm very excited. I, I don't think there's a lack of entrepreneurial shift at all among uh, not-for-profit organizations, they, they, they have a history. They have uh, uh, molded with the times. They have changed the way they do things in order to meet the needs of the uh, folks they serve. And it's a, it's a great testament to their flexibility and their view that they are in it for the long haul. They know that this is part of the mission that um, that somebody, excuse me, somebody has to carry on. And um, yeah, I've, I've quite um, enthused. That said, I will end with the concept that if you are in an organization that is not uh, feeling optimistic about your future, that you should not wait until things are so bad that um, it will be very difficult to assist you to a new, a new ministry. I, 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 we, Susan and I are agreeing with each other this whole conversation, but I, I, I think <laughs> she's okay. exactly right. You know, uh, 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 we are in an, an extraordinarily disruptive environment in aging services right now, and and disruption creates challenges, but it also creates great opportunities. And I think faith-based organizations are very well placed to uh, respond to those opportunities. You know, we, we talked about people getting more care at home. It's not just a need for home health agencies or home care agencies. 
There's also a whole other infrastructure around this in terms of adult day and transportation services and information referral. All of these are areas where faith-based organizations can, can really provide very important services. The challenge, of course, is to figure out how they're going to get paid for. And that's where I think we're going to need some policy changes. But, but I think in terms of of creativity and entrepreneurism, I think that there are great opportunities here. Uh, great input. Uh, Marianne, as always, when we, we talk about a particular issue of health progress, I'd like to give you the last word on these podcasts. So uh, reflections back on what we heard over the last half hour? Well, I think that probably these two people are the ones that can give us the most objective view of where things are and, um, and also the most objective, hopeful stance that we can take. So I'm really grateful that you uh, participated in this conversation. And, and you know, you, you are great resources. I wish this information could be in every family's reading material. You know, I think that it's so important. People don't know what to do with Medicaid and Medicare. And, uh, you know, when they have to make those decisions, it often happens after somebody's had a fall or somebody's suddenly moved into a, a new and less good state of health. So um, thank you very much. I, I found it personally helpful, and I think that all of our listeners are going to find it very helpful too. Agree. And I think uh, as a reminder, if you want to read more about this topic, there's a lot of really good articles in the current issue, the winter issue of Health Progress. It's on aging and long-term care. And Howard Gluckman from the Urban Institute and Susan McDonough with Ziegler Investment Banking were both featured prominently in the issue. So be sure to check that out. You can uh, get a copy of that online at chausa.org. Howard and Susan, thank you again for being with us today. We appreciate uh, your insights. And as always, we appreciate the work of uh, Clayton Studio in helping us put together this podcast. And for Marianne Steiner, I'm Brian Reardon. This has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. And until next time, we'll talk to you.